We are going to continue our Gospel of Mark sermon series. We're going to be in Mark chapter 6. This is week 25. So we started this uh, last June, so we're almost on a year here pretty soon. But I'm excited to continue that. But before I do, I just want to say that that Activate class is going to be an amazing time together. Uh, something that people ask me oftentimes when they come to the church for the first time is, is, what do I do next? And I'm usually like, well, sign up for the dream team or sign up for small groups. But I've realized that there needs to be a transitional thing in between those two things from coming to church and, and signing up for those teams. So I just want to encourage you, even if you've already been at the church for a year or since we started, to take this class because it's going to teach you some basics about following Jesus. It's going to um, just show you the vision of our church, but also it's going to equip you to, to be a healthy member of a small group and also show you what your gifts are and how you can be a part of the dream team. So I just really want to encourage you to do that. I would love to see as many people as possible sign up. And when you register, you can just register for a few of the classes too. So maybe you can't make it all four weeks because you're on vacation or something. That's okay. Just come to two or three of the classes and then catch the class that you miss on the next round because we're going to try to do this about every other month. So that's the hope and the plan. So I'm excited for that. But, but now we're going to jump into the sermon. So last week we dealt with, or dealt with what was probably the most difficult passage we've looked at yet in the Gospel of Mark series, and we did it on Mother's Day. We talked about the beheading of John the Baptist. All the moms are ready for an encouraging word about how they're God's masterpiece, and they came in, they're like, get your head cut off. What is this about? What kind of church is this? And the moms are still mad at me, but I'm sorry. That's what the text was, but you guys are feeling crazy this morning, aren't you? I thought you were going to laugh harder at that joke, but anyways, so, so the, the main thing that the text taught us was, or that Mark's trying to show us through this text, is that if we want to be Jesus' disciple, we have to lay it all down for Jesus. Now, hopefully, we're not all getting beheaded, but the idea is that we die to ourselves, that, that we're willing to lay it all down for Jesus. And at this point in the gospel, Jesus' ministry is really picking up steam as the disciples went out on their first mission, and the people in power are starting to hear about Jesus. He's causing quite a stir. He's starting to kind of turn the world upside down. And with this in mind, let's continue the gospel story in verse 31. So it says this. It says, And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Okay, so the word for the desolate place there, it's the same word for wilderness or for a quiet place. It says in verse 32, And they went away in the boat, to a desolate place by themselves, and not many, and now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he, and he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Okay, so the sermon title this morning, if you're taking notes, and I sure hope you are, is the shepherd we need, the shepherd we need. Okay, so let me pray for that, and then we'll jump in. So Jesus, uh, we thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for every heart that's here, and I pray that every person here would hear from you today. 
Good shepherd, we pray that, that your voice would ring out in this room. So Lord, have your way in this place and do your thing. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as I shared last week, I played high school football, and I started on the offensive line at 190 pounds, which was pretty difficult. I, I wasn't that good. I don't know how I actually got to play. Well, I do know how everybody was small on my team, and we were terrible. We went like one and eight and two and seven, but that's besides the point. The thing I didn't share last week was I had a very different experience between my junior year and my senior year. Okay, during my junior year, I really did not like playing. I had this coach who's the offensive line coach, so I got to hang out with him all the time, who I just really did not like. He loved to yell, just one of those people who just wants to yell. Like He thinks if he yells more, then he's a better coach. And he was super mean for no reason. And the worst part is he really didn't know what he was doing. I I swear, he did not know what he was talking about. And this led to a pretty miserable experience for me. I remember just being frustrated and full of angst during practices. I wanted to start a coup against this coach. But I was delighted my senior year when he was moved to running backs. I'm like, there you go, running backs. Enjoy him. And I got the wide receiver coach actually moved to offensive line. And he was one of the best teachers in the school. We all loved him. Just an incredible guy. And this new coach, he was tough for sure. Like, it wasn't like he had low standards. He actually had very high standards, perhaps higher standards than the other coach. But he is what you would call a player's coach. Like, he knew how to connect with us. He He knew what made us tick. He did not yell at us randomly like the other coach. And he was also super smart. Like he knew football better than anybody. And I loved playing for him. And I no longer felt frustrated during practice, but I actually really enjoyed it for the most part. Being under his leadership made all the difference and made it a really satisfying season for me. Oftentimes our lives can kind of feel like football felt for me my junior year. Things just don't feel quite right. We're not satisfied with how things are going. There is a deep angst under the surface of our lives. There's, there's something not quite right in our hearts. It almost feels as if we're carrying a weight around. And when we encounter this angst or this unhappiness or this anxiety, we often try to deal with it by turning to the things of the world. So for instance, we might try to turn to substances to try to numb the pain. Or, or maybe we try to numb our minds with entertainment. We just binge or binge Netflix all the time, or Hulu, or, or, or whatever you might watch. Or maybe we binge food. Maybe we try to just kind of numb the pain by just eating, or just eating more food. Or maybe we do things that aren't quite as bad, like we just try to pursue new experiences. We think, hey, if I just jump out of an airplane, I'm going to like find joy, and I do the thing. What's that called again? I forgot. I'm having a brain for Skydiving. Thank you. I should know what that is. Anyway, skydiving, or if I just find some new people to spend time with. Like, it's just, I have lame friends. I I need more fun friends to uh, to make me happy. Or maybe we think if we change a job, it'll make us happy. Or if we move to a new community, we try to find all these, these different answers. And the problem with these solutions is that they don't deal with the root cause of our dissatisfaction. Because here's the thing, it's not bad to change things up, it's not bad to try new things. But but these things, all they're gonna do if we change them, it's just gonna try to or it's just gonna distract us from the dissatisfaction for a season. Or maybe if we're numbing ourselves, it's just gonna distract us as long as we can numb ourselves. But the true solution is much deeper than that. It's underneath the surface. It's much deeper. So the question I I want to look at this morning is how do we live with a deep sense of satisfaction? How do we get this deep sense that it doesn't matter what's going on out there, it doesn't matter what our circumstances are, we live with this, this centered sense of satisfaction? In our passage Today, Jesus meets a crowd who is trying to answer the same question. There was a deep restlessness in their hearts, and they knew that something had to change. 
And his response to them is going to show us how we can overcome this in our own hearts. But before we get to that, we have to understand this crowd and what they're going through. We have to kind of put ourselves in the first century and try to understand what they were processing at the time. The first thing to understand is that this crowd is full of Jewish people. Okay, so the New Testament, it's, it's typically, well, in the Gospels, Jesus is typically interacting with Jewish people. They were God's chosen people, and they had a glorious calling. They were called to be God's light to the world. However, for the last several centuries, they had been occupied by foreign powers. They had been occupied by Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Greece and now Rome. And the ruler at this time was a Roman puppet named King Herod, who, who wasn't even Jewish. They had fallen so far from the days of old when they were a sovereign nation and ruled by the likes of King David and King Solomon, who we read about in the Old Testament. And instead of having a king after God's own heart like David, or a king who was full of wisdom like King Solomon, they had this conflicted and confused leader who we read about last week in the John the Baptist story. Although... Herod was intrigued by John the Baptist. He was intrigued by his call to holiness, his call to repentance. He would still have lavish parties, and he married his brother's wife. He even went so far to behead John the Baptist because his wife told him to. So while Herod is having these lavish parties and cutting off the heads of prophets, his people are starting to rally to Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus says they were like sheep without a shepherd. And shepherd is an Old Testament metaphor for the, Israelite, or for the Israelite leaders like Moses and Joshua and David, these great men of God. When David becomes the king of Israel in 2 Samuel, it says this in chapter 5. It says, in times past when Saul was king over us, or the first king of Israel, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you that you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. Israel had this deep longing for a good, godly shepherd like King David. There was a deep national angst for this. They didn't have a true king, and their religious leaders were corrupt. It's in this context that we get to our story today. So again, everything that happens in Scripture, there's a context to it, and if we don't understand the context, we can't really understand what's happening. And this is the context here. So in Mark 6, 31, it says this, Jesus says to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For, for many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. Okay, so Jesus' disciples, they are tired. They just got back from their first mission. And Jesus tries taking them to a quiet place for some rest. And Jesus knew that in order for his disciples to continue ministering to these desperate crowds effectively, they needed to rest before doing something for God, they had to be with God. Can I say it again? That could just be a side sermon. That doesn't have a lot to do with today's sermon. But, but before you do something for God, you've got to be with God. You have to become someone. God's more interested in who you become than what you're doing. Okay, so Jesus, he, he takes them in a boat, and he's looking for a desolate place to rest. Okay, so we see this rhythm of engagement. They just had intense ministry, and now they're retreating to get some rest. In the back half of verse 31, it says that there's many coming and going. That's very important, this idea of many people coming and going. This is Mark's way of capturing the angst of the people. They were restless. They were moving about. They're looking for an answer. They're coming and going. It's exhausting. When Jesus and his disciples get to the shore, they see that a great crowd is already there waiting for them. This is how desperate the crowds were for an answer. 
Okay, so Jesus, he would have been tempted, surely tempted, I would have been tempted to avoid the crowd and say, no, this is me time. Okay, I'm gonna go rest. I'm gonna watch some Netflix. I've been doing stuff all day. I need to relax. I need to find a lazy boy and chill out. He would have been tempted to tell them to go away, and I don't think his disciples would have complained about it. But instead, it says this in verse 34. It says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Jesus had compassion. Okay, so why did he have compassion? Well, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He knew that they did not have a godly or a godly loving leader, and it utterly broke his heart. They desperately needed direction. Herod was not cutting it, right? He's off just dinking around in the palace, and the religious class was certainly missing it too. And Jesus' response is to teach them. His response to their need is to teach them about the kingdom of God. He shepherds them. Okay, so here's the first thing I want you to write down if you're taking notes. We desperately need a shepherd. Every human being is wired to be under the loving guidance of Jesus Christ. Every human being. There is a God-sized hole in every heart that Jesus is supposed to fill. We are made to be shepherded by him, and if we fail to come under his, his loving leadership, it's going to lead to an ache in our hearts. Israel, they felt this deep in their bones, but they didn't understand quite what kind of shepherd they needed. They didn't quite get it. It's in this context of their frustration at their current state, a movement begins to spring up in first century Israel called the Zealot Movement. Okay, I've talked about it before, but the Zealots, the Zealots were a people who wanted to sack Rome and set up a new kingdom. They wanted to have a, a literal military and political kingdom. They wanted to take Israel to their former glory through force. They were hoping that the Messiah that God was going to send would be the leader that makes this happen. Okay, so scholar James Edwards he points out in his commentary that this text is full of hints that there's this zealot fervor in the crowd. They wanted Jesus to be their military leader. It says this in his commentary. It says, An unusual number of signs thus suggests that the wilderness commotion was aflame with messianic fervor and that the crowd hoped to sweep Jesus up as a guerrilla leader. Okay, so Mark, he hints at this all over the place. The first place he hints at it is when he says that they were like sheep without a shepherd. Okay, so shepherd's predominantly like a military image. It's an, it's an image of a leader who's going to lead you into battle. That's how it's used in the Old Testament. He also hints at it in verse 31. I said this before, but remember when it says that people were coming and going, it's capturing this, this uh, suspicious angst, this anxiety among the people. They're trying to get a movement going. There's a movement brewing, and it doesn't necessarily have, have great ends in mind. They want to take down Rome. They want to set up their own kingdom. And then the other sign was the fact that the men got there ahead of Jesus. They're like trying to catch him before he gets there. And there's not just a few men. There's 5,000 men. That's a ton of people at this time. That's larger than the whole town of Capernaum. There is a movement of brewing, and they don't got good ideas about what they want to do. They're wanting war. And they're wanting Jesus to lead them. In John 6, he says this explicitly. It says this in verse 15. And when John tells the story, he just comes out and says it. Mark's kind of hinting to it. John says it explicitly. He says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus didn't say, "Woo, let's do it, come on. No, he withdrew to a mountain by himself to have quiet time. Okay, so although the crowds were right, 
in that Jesus was supposed to be their shepherd, and he did come from the line of David. He was supposed to be their king. They misunderstood what kind of shepherd he was supposed to be. He was not to be a, a military leader. He would not lead with force, but with sacrificial love. They misunderstood what kind of shepherd they needed. And we, in our angst and our frustration today, we often misunderstand what kind of shepherd we need. Just like the Israelites, we, or we rightly recognize that we need a shepherd. In our frustration and angst, we recognize that things are not as they should be and something needs to change. And the reason we feel this is the world is not as it should be. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, the world has been fractured and our relationship with God has been severed. We've been cut off from his loving presence. And again, like I said earlier, this leads to a sense of discontentment in our hearts. And we often hear this this morning. Are you ready for me to preach? Are you ready for it? All right, let's go. So we often deal with this ache by putting our hope in the wrong things. Okay, so we take good things that God meant for us to enjoy and we make them into ultimate things. And we make them into things that we put our hope in. We make them into little g-gods. Okay, we do this with politics. We think that if we can get the right political leader in office, then we can find peace and contentment. Like if our guy gets in, then everything's going to be good. And politics has kind of become this weird form of religion, and that's why people get all crazy when things aren't going the way they want it to today because they're putting their hope in it. Okay, we also do this with entertainment. We can numb ourselves by binging Netflix. I talked about that a bit earlier. We do this with our careers. We think that if we can achieve a certain amount of things, then we can find significance and fix our hearts. We think if I just get one more trophy that says I'm amazing, then I can find peace and contentment. But here's the thing. You don't need someone in this world to tell you that you're good. You need Jesus to look, or the Father to look at you and say, you are my beloved son or my daughter with whom I'm well pleased. Okay, we also do this with money. We think if I can just get more money, have more money in a savings account or have more possessions that I buy, then I'll be happy. I could go on and on. Politics, entertainment, careers, money, family, sports, and so forth, they all make crummy shepherds. They won't give us peace and contentment. They won't restore this world. We desperately need something more than these things. We need Jesus. I believe that this is the primary point that Mark is trying to make. The crowds were restless and unhappy, and they thought that Jesus might be the answer. They were intrigued by him but they didn't quite grasp how he would be the answer. Okay, that's the important thing. They didn't grasp how he would be the answer. This story is supposed to show us how Jesus is the answer. And you can't overstate the importance of this miracle in the minds of the early church as this miracle made it into all four gospels and most stories did not. This was one of the only ones. This miracle is, is uniquely equipped to give us a vivid picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do. But it's easy to miss this if you don't have an understanding of the Old Testament. For the Jewish reader who was just utterly saturated in the Old Testament, they would notice right away that this story is an echo of what happened when Israel wandered the desert in Exodus chapter 16, and, or through 18, and it goes on. But, but the point is, their minds would have went to Exodus 16. In Exodus 16, Israel is wandering the desert, they're very hungry, and they're complaining about not having enough to eat. And it says this in verse 2 of chapter 16. It says, And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them would, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Okay, so they're saying it would have been better to just stay in Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill 
this whole assembly with hunger. Okay, so they're complaining that God freed them from slavery. You're a grateful group, but uh, wow. But anyways, God responds to their need by sending manna from heaven. So God fills their need. He's like, come on, guys. I just freed you. I just part of the Red Sea. Okay, is that not enough? But anyways, he, he does give them manna from heaven. In the same way, here in our passage, the crowd is hungry. Okay, they're in the wilderness. That's why I pointed that out. They're going to the wilderness. Not just a desolate place, but the wilderness. And they're grumbling at their current state. Just like Moses, Jesus miraculously feeds them. But it's not just about dealing with physical hunger. There's more to it than that. It's about dealing with their spiritual hunger. Jesus shows compassion to them first by teaching them the word of God. So, so in a way, doing what Moses did as Moses taught the people of Israel the law. This story also points to Exodus 18 where Moses divides Israel into different groups and he identifies leaders to lead them, thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Again, Jesus follows Moses' example by dividing the crowd into hundreds and fifties and appointing the disciples to feed them. Okay, so why does Mark keep connecting Jesus to Moses? This is what we have to get here. If we're going to really get what he's talking about, why does he connect Jesus to Moses? Well, he's trying to make the point that Jesus is the new Moses. Okay, Jesus is the greater Moses. While Moses taught the law, Jesus came to preach the gospel. And while Moses represented the people to God, and he often would intercede on their behalf, there's some beautiful stories of of Moses going to God for the people and interceding on their behalf. He loved his people. So while Moses did that, Jesus came to restore man's relationship with God once and for all by dying in our place and rising from the grave. He takes it a step further. He gives up his life for his people. Okay, so Moses, he was like a prototype for a good leader, for a good shepherd. And Mark is saying that Jesus has come to walk in that same spirit, but be even better than Moses. He's going to be the answer to, or he's going to be the best kind of shepherd we could ever have. He's going to be the answer to our longings and our ache. But this passage doesn't only show us how Jesus is the answer by pointing to Moses. It also points to the Lord's Supper. Okay, so the way that Mark describes what Jesus did with the bread, it, it fits neatly in with the way that the church received communion in the first few centuries. Okay, they would take the bread and they would bless it, break it, and give it. Okay, so Mark, he's pointing to the fact that Jesus will break his body and shed his blood for who? Well, for the shepherdless masses, for the people who need a shepherd. Okay, so through Jesus' sacrifice, new creation will be possible. Satisfaction and abundant life is possible through Jesus breaking his body. Okay, so Mark 6, 42 through 44 says, And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up the twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Okay, so while Mark is telling us about their physical need here, he's also making a greater point. He's pointing to the kingdom of God. He's pointing to new creation. The kingdom of God is not like Herod's kingdom. It's not led by a confused and conflicted leader who abuses his people. It's not just for the high class, but it's for the lowly. It's for the restless and, and the needy. And all who come to the shepherd of this kingdom will have their needs met, and there'll be some left over, right? There'll be some more bread to eat if you're feeling seconds. But the point is, Jesus is the shepherd we need. He's what we've been longing for, and his kingdom is the home we long for. For the Jews on the lawn that day, they needed to realize that a military or political leader was not the answer to their longings. 
For us today, we need to realize that fame and success, money, sex, entertainment, the American dream, or anything else that the world can offer us is not the answer to our deep longings. There's not something out there that needs to change. There's something in here that needs to change. Okay, the answer to our longings is a new leader, a new shepherd for our hearts. So maybe you're trying to be the shepherd, and you need to let Jesus be the shepherd. We need the good shepherd. And for and for me, back to my high school story, having a different coach or a different shepherd made all the difference and made it a joyful experience. You know, maybe the reason your life is not going the way you want it to is you're not a very good shepherd. So let Jesus be the shepherd. Let him lead your life. Let him guide you. You know, I think about Psalm 23 where David talks about how good of a shepherd God is. He says, I shall not want for he leads me into green pastures and by still waters. Maybe Jesus is a better shepherd than you are. And maybe Jesus is a better shepherd than the things that this world offers. If we can find the right shepherd, we can live a life of deep satisfaction and deep joy no matter what's going on out there. Okay, so back to my original question. How do we find this deep satisfaction? If we want to live a life of satisfaction, we need Jesus to be the shepherd of our hearts. But it doesn't stop there. That could just be the sermon I could walk off, but there's more. If we simply find Jesus ourselves, we miss a big part of what it means to be his disciple. Okay, disciples of deep of Jesus, I almost called him Jesus, okay, so I don't know what that is, but disciples of Jesus, they don't just enjoy the benefits of, of following him without sharing him with other people and taking responsibility for his mission. This is seen clearly in Jesus' interaction with the disciples. When the disciples come and want to send people home, Jesus says this back to them. He says this, this is so good. In verse 37, he says, you give them something to eat, Okay, so Jesus, he's trying to teach them a lesson. Jesus is a teacher at heart, right? He's trying to teach them something here. The kingdom of God comes through disciples who take responsibility for the mission of God. It comes through disciples going out to give people something to eat. That was the whole reason why Jesus had sent them out two by two. He's trying to teach them how to take the kingdom to people. He wanted them to own the mission. Just before Jesus left the earth, he described the mission in this way in Matthew 28. Maybe you've heard it, but I just pray that you'd have fresh eyes this morning to see what God's saying. It says this in verse 19. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, or commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If we want to see the kingdom of God come on the earth, if we want to see more people eat and be satisfied, we must go and make disciples. And for whatever reason, God has chosen to partner with you and I to bring his kingdom to the earth. And when we see the brokenness, the angst, and the longings of the world, we're not supposed to harden our hearts or say, hey, they can take care of themselves or, or send people away. But we're supposed to show people how they can get bread from heaven, show them how they can get the living water that Jesus talks about in John 4 with the woman at the well. We're supposed to show them this by by leading them to salvation and baptism and by teaching them how to obey Jesus. We're supposed to lovingly guide people just as a shepherd would. You could think of it this way. We're supposed to be under shepherds of Jesus, helping shepherd the people. The world needs Jesus, but people won't meet him if we don't do our part. God has called us to be his preachers, his proclaimers of the gospel, and he's called us to help people follow him. Okay, so that's the next thing I want you to write down is we're called to connect people to the shepherd, this, this is for everybody, and teach them how to follow him. This isn't just for pastors or church leaders. This isn't a paid position at a church. 
This is for every follower of Jesus. Every disciple makes disciples. Every disciple of Jesus needs to find someone who they can encourage and gently push closer to Jesus. We each need to do our part, whether big or small, if we want to usher in God's kingdom. This often looks like just living a life of example. Okay, so part of it is just you being the real deal. Okay, that's a great message to preach. People read your life. People hear the message of your life by how you live. So part of it is setting an example, but it, it, it goes further than that. You have to get your hands dirty. You have to actually guide people and teach them and encourage them. Okay, so when you think about that call, you may be tempted to think that you're not the person for the job. You maybe think you're not smart enough or you're not holy enough or for you, maybe you're thinking about all the mistakes you've made in the past. You're like, hey, I could not be used by God. Or maybe you think you're not charismatic enough. You're like, hey, I'm an introvert. I can't do it. Hey, I'm kind of introverted too, so, and I'm preaching, so we all got to do it, okay? I don't care if you like to spend time with people or not. <laughs> it's a call for everybody, and I like spending time with people. Hear me, I'm a pastor. I should love to spend time with people, and I do. Okay, anyways, back to this. I'm sure the disciples could relate to you. Okay, I'm sure they could relate to you in the sense of feeling unqualified for the job. They were just fishermen. They were ordinary guys. They weren't teachers of the law. And when it came to feeding the crowds, they said this. When it came to this specific story, they're like, Jesus, are you expecting us to go and get 200 denarii and go buy a bunch of bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Okay, so he's not saying to think about what you don't have. He's saying, he's saying what do you have? And they say, we have five loaves and two fish. Okay, so how in the world were they going to feed the crowd with five loaves and two fish? Well, they were going to feed the crowd by trusting the Lord of heaven to provide. Okay, they had the king of the universe telling them to do this. They could trust him to provide. It says this in verse 41. It says, in taking the loaves and the fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they even had some left over. In our quest to spiritually feed and disciple other people, we must take what we have, no matter how little we think it is, and surrender it to God and watch him move. Okay, we don't have to be the smartest or the holiest or the most outgoing. We simply have to love God, love people, and do our part. As we do, God will be faithful to prove himself. God is not faithless. He is faithful. He will prove himself. God will use us to meet people's needs. He will use us to help restore people to him He's going to use us to help people become fully devoted followers of him. James Edwards says it this way in his commentary again. He says, the disciples, they complain about what they lack. Jesus, he focuses on what they possess. Jesus sees possibilities where his disciples see only impossibilities. We could sit there all day. Do you see possibilities or impossibilities? When you look at the world, when you look at your friends who need Jesus, do you say, that's impossible? Or do you say, my God is greater. He can do anything. Where his disciples see impossibilities Jesus sees possibilities, for God can multiply even the smallest gift if they are made available to him. Just give him what you have. Okay, so the question is, what do you need to surrender to Jesus today so that he can multiply it? For you, maybe you need to surrender your time to him. You may think you're too busy for God's kingdom, but guess what? Everybody has the same amount of time. We all have 168 hours a week to leverage. Leverage the time you do have for God's kingdom. Spend time with Jesus every day. Make that your top priority to, to be with Jesus. Encourage people as you go about throughout your day. It doesn't have to be crazy. Just encourage people. Be present with your family and your friends. Love your family and friends well. 
Share your faith when you are given the opportunity. Okay, sometimes we like overcomplicate sharing our faith. We're like, I need to go up to a random stranger and be like, hey, do you know Jesus? Let me tell you about him right now. We're gonna do this right here, right now. No, just look for a, a normal opportunity. Just share your life with them. I promise if you love Jesus, he's gonna come up in conversation and be like, hey, I'm going to Scent Church. It's gonna be crazy. God's gonna move. You wanna come with me? You know, just, I don't know if you do it that way. You don't have to talk that way. But the point is, just live your life, just, just build relationships, and God will give you opportunities to share your faith. Don't overcomplicate it. If you're truly living this life of faith, the opportunities will come. Okay, so as you're going, share your faith, as you get those opportunities. Also, I just want to encourage you to prioritize Christian community. I love it when you're here on Sundays. And not just because I love hanging out with you, but I know that you're obeying Jesus. When we come together, we are prioritizing the church. The church is God's, I was just reading in 1 Timothy this morning how how he calls it like the buttress of truth, right? It's, the, it's this pillar. The church is God's, or Christ's bride. And, and when we come together, Jesus says he'll be there with us. We need to prioritize this time together so, so we can worship the Lord and so we can hear from his word. Or maybe for you, you don't need to sacrifice your time. Well, everyone needs to do that. But, but for you, you're maybe hearing the Lord calling you to surrender your talents to him this morning. Every member of the body of Christ has something to contribute at Scent Church, we're not consumers, we're contributors. Each person has a part to play. As Paul says, the small parts of the body, like the toe, are just as important as the big parts. Identify your gifts, develop them, and use them for God's glory. Or maybe you need to surrender your finances to God this morning. It's not about how much we make or don't make. When we start thinking that way, we're, we're looking at it wrong. It's not about the expenses we have. It's about being faithful to let God direct our finances. And a powerful place to start is with the tithe, as there's both a spiritual and a practical benefit for this. There are some people who aren't Christians who practice the tithe because of its practical benefits, as it teaches you how to manage the rest of your money better. But not just the practical side, God blesses your 90% when you trust him with the first 10. Or maybe this morning you need to surrender your comfort to God today. You like to play it safe, and you need to start taking some steps of faith. You need to invite that friend to church, or give up that bad habit, or answer that prompting that God has put on your heart. Don't look at what you don't have today. Look at what you do. God has given you, or he's given you resources to leverage. God can do a lot with a little if we surrender it to him. Bring your five loaves and your two fish this morning to Jesus and watch him multiply. Can I get an amen, somebody? Come on. About to have church in this place. Bring what you have. Don't think about what you don't have. Let's stop thinking in terms of impossibilities. Let's think of possibilities. Say, hey, I have this, Jesus. Use it for your will. It may not be much, but it's what I have, and I'm surrendering it to you. And if we do that, God will exceed our expectations. He is faithful. He's the same God who parted the Red Sea. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of David. I could keep going. This God will be faithful. But the point this morning, the main idea, if we don't walk in satisfaction, we must first follow the shepherd ourselves and let him guide us, and then help other people do the same. When I think about God partnering, or partnering with us to connect people to himself, I can't help but think of some of my friends and mentors who helped connect me to God, who helped shepherd me closer to Jesus. I have a great group of an inner circle of friends and also some mentors who just really helped push me closer to Jesus. And just this last week, in the matter of one day, two different friends just encouraged my socks off. It was two separate phone conversations talking about something different, and both of them just, God used them to encourage me and shepherd me, so to speak. In the first conversation, I was processing something that I didn't really know how to deal with it, and I needed someone else's perspective. And I called this friend. I knew he would have like a spirit-led perspective. He's just a man of prayer. And, and I shared what I was going through, and I thought he would say one thing. I thought he would just affirm what I was thinking. And he, 
had something completely different to say about the situation. And I'm like, wow, I'm not a very good leader. I never thought of that. <laughs> I'm like, why didn't I think of that? That was so smart, you know? But the point is, it was such a spirit-led perspective. God used him in that moment to help connect me to the shepherd and to hear what Jesus was saying instead of what I was saying about the situation. All I could hear before I called him is what I thought about the situation. And God used him to speak to me. I got off the phone. I'm just gonna be honest with you. I did it an ugly cry in my car as I heard from Jesus through a close friend. But that wasn't it. A couple hours later, I called a different friend. He's actually the guy who helped us put up our speakers here. If you didn't know, we have new speakers. Uh, we're still working it out, but they sound great. I'm excited about it. But the point is he helped us set up these speakers. So more of a tech guy. He is a pastor, but he serves more in that role. And he's talking about the speakers and, and some stuff about tech that I didn't really understand. But he said something in the middle of that little that little monologue that just caught my attention and I knew that the Holy Spirit was speaking through him to me about some completely different situation. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? God just speaking to me today. And afterwards, I texted him afterwards. I'm like, man, thank you for being faithful. There's something you said that you don't even know you said it probably, but it encouraged me and God spoke to you through me. And I think it's easy when we think about these kinds of stories to be like, wow, that takes a lot of effort or, or maybe it's kind of scary. Like, how could you be a person who's used by God? How could you be a person who God speaks through? But the thing is, both of these guys' encouragement, it didn't take preparation. It didn't take like 10 hours of them trying to hear what God wanted to say to me. Instead, it, it was an overflow of who they are. They are disciples of Jesus who spend time with Jesus and God simply spoke through them to me. We don't need to overcomplicate this. We don't need to overcomplicate this idea of being used to help shepherd the masses. We don't need to overcomplicate it. Just be a disciple of Jesus and let God move through you. Okay, so with that in mind, I want to give us two applications for today. The first one is this. If you come in here this morning and you're dealing with discontentment or lack of satisfaction or frustration at, at what's going on in life, I want to point you to the shepherd. The good shepherd wants to lead you. He wants to guide you. He doesn't want you to be on your own. Jesus' heart, it broke when he saw the crowds because he, he wanted to lead them. He wanted to guide them. That's the whole point of why he came was to give his life so they could be reconciled to God and so they could come back under the leadership of their shepherd. This morning, if you're struggling, go to the good shepherd. He wants to lead you. He wants to guide you. But the second application is this. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, remember that your role in the story is not just to be the crowd. We love being the crowd. Like Jesus brings us bread and fish. It's really good fish. And we're like, this is amazing. He's serving me. He's encouraging me. This is awesome. But that's not the only role we play in the story. Yes, we are the crowd, but we're also the disciples who go out and give people something to eat. Jesus has called you to be his disciple. He's called you to be with him, to become like him and go out and do the things he did. He's calling you to help connect people to him. Don't, or don't sit on the sidelines. Get in the game. Don't ride the bench. Nobody rides the pine here at St. Church. Instead, we step into the divine. And yes, I plan that, it rhymes. And there's another rhyme. But, uh, but the point is, it's time to do what God has called you to do. So I don't know what he's putting on your heart. I'm not God, I have no idea. But I encourage you to say yes to Jesus. You'll never regret it. The best place to be is to bring our little loaves, our little fishes, and just say yes to Jesus, whatever you want me to do. So this morning, Jesus is calling you to say yes to him and to get in the game. If we can be a church where we each come under the loving leadership of Jesus and help other people to do or to do the same, we will have an exponential impact. We cannot, I repeat, cannot be a church that's truly for the one, for the city, and for the world if we don't first 
get discipled under Jesus, if we don't first come under his leadership and truly walk with him day in and day out. And also, not just that, we can't be a church that's for the one, for the city, for the world if we don't each take responsibility for the mission of God. So this morning, the call is simple. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do the things that Jesus did, right? That's the call. Okay, so if we could stand to our feet, we're gonna close here. The prayer team's gonna come. The prayer team will be available during this last song if you need prayer, and also the altars are open. I just want to respond to God this morning. I don't know what's speaking to you. Maybe it's the part about being shepherded. Maybe you just really need Jesus to shepherd you today. Or maybe it's the other part. You need to go and give the crowd something to eat. But whatever it is, I just pray that God would speak to you and that you would obey him. So let's just bow our heads, close our eyes. Let's respond to God in prayer. I'm just going to pray for you no matter which group you fall into or maybe both. Yeah, Jesus, this morning we come to you. And, and for those who are just kind of feeling tired, maybe they're feeling discontented, Lord, I pray this morning that you would call them into your fold, so to speak. God, I pray that they would be willing to be shepherded by you. And Jesus, I pray that as they do, that they would find rest for their souls, that they would find satisfaction, that they would find living water that truly satisfies. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the God who satisfies. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. I pray that you do that all across this room. And secondly, Lord, I pray for those who are being called to get off the bench and to contribute to the kingdom of God. I pray for those who are being called to leverage what you've given them for your glory. God, I pray that each person that calls this place home would would truly jump in the game and make disciples and make disciples. God, I pray that this would be a disciple-making church, not a church that just gathers people here on Sundays, but a church that goes out and does what we're called to do. God, we love you. We thank you for what you're doing in this place. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.